0: Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 2 this morning. We want to look at verses 1 through 6. And uh, I'll give you a moment to find your seats. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. The hypocritical moralist is what I'm talking about this morning. Uh, That's uh, the theme of our our section here in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Let's pray together. Lord, again, we thank you for the privilege to study Help us to glean from the Word of God, the living Word of God, the eternal Word of God, that which you would have us to to see, uh, to apply uh, to our lives today. So we commit our time in the Word to you. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, You'll note on the overhead the theme of Romans is the righteousness of God slash the gospel of God. Romans is the most systematic presentation of the gospel that we have in the New Testament Scriptures. Paul presents his case for the gospel like a lawyer, in effect carefully presenting every piece of evidence that makes his case very clear. Well, after presenting the prologue in Romans 1, 1 through 17, Paul then proceeds to first and foremost present the great issue of sin, showing that all are under the condemnation of sin. You see, in order to realize you need a Savior, you first of all have to realize You are a sinner. It starts there. And you're not a good sinner. You are a corrupted sinner through and through. Uh, There is none righteous. Uh, There is none good. Boy, you get to that litany of statements in chapter 3. It's it's pretty ugly. We'll get there. (laughs) But uh, he breaks it down like this. Romans 1, 18 through 3, 20, the whole world guilty before God. That's what he is in uh, lawyer-like way uh, presenting. We see depraved pagans, yeah, Uh, 1, 18 through 32. And everybody says, yeah, those pagans, those raw pagans, that's what, yeah, right. How about the uh, moralist? That's where we are in chapter 2, 1 through 16, the hypocritical moralist. And then uh, the self-righteous religionists, you know, those people that go to church every week. Uh, some of them are just self righteous, and he addresses them in two hundred seventeen through three eight and then the whole human race uh, three 9 through twenty. Well, in our study, we find ourselves right in the middle of this dark but ever relevant context now it 's very important to know, and uh, really, over the next couple weeks you 'll what i 'm about to say, I will establish this, uh, but it 's very important to know that that paul 's flow of thought continues from one seventeen and 18, which really colors the entire discussion through chapter 3. You see, in Romans one seventeen, we noted that God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith, which is to say from initial justifying faith to the life of faith. People that are right with God put that on display in a life of faith. As Paul says, the just shall live by faith. Well, in contrast, Romans 1.18 shows that the wrath of God is revealed against those who suppress the truth and live ungodly. The wrath of God is revealed in God giving them over to their own sinful devices. And just as growth in faith is progressive from faith to faith, So likewise, devolving in unrighteousness is also progressive. Uh, Note uh, the flow of thought in chapter 1. God gave them over to sexual immorality, 124, to sexual perversion, uh, homosexuality, lesbianism, 126 and 27, and then to mental moral madness, 128 their minds no longer work right in relationship to moral discernment and judgment so in the final final state of god giving people over they no longer have a reliable moral compass they are really spiritually crazy if people persist in rejecting the light that god has given then god just gives them over to darkness and they walk in blindness Now, to be totally hardened in this position is eternally fatal. The obedience of faith, 1-5, results in an ever-upward cycle of putting God's righteousness on display as one moves from faith to faith. Proverbs says this, Proverbs 4-18, But the path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter unto that perfect day. There's the principle. Well, in contrast, those who suppress and reject the truth of God experience God's wrath ever being involved in a downward cycle to moral oblivion. Note that God's righteousness is being revealed in people of faith and that God's wrath is being revealed in the lives of the ungodly and that both are in the present tense being revealed. Both are being revealed in this life. In the here and now. Now, this is important to note because this reality has implications for what Paul now develops in chapter 2. Up to this point, in chapter 1, Paul has been addressing the out and out pagan who has no pretense of believing or or knowing God. Uh, The person in view in chapter 1 is overt in their rebellion and defiance of God and his morals. And the moralists and the religionists say, Amen. To Paul denouncing them and showing that they are under the condemnation of sin. Yes, those terrible pagans. Yep, yep, yep. Amen. However, in, in contrast, the moralists and the religionists think that they are personally okay. I'm okay. Yes, the pagans are going to hell, but not them because they think They're better. We're better than that. And so Paul proceeds to show that both the moralist and the religionists are also equally under the condemnation of sin. Today in our study, he addresses the hypocritical moralist. You see, the moralists are self-righteous. They think within themselves that they're better than those raw pagans. And outwardly, it would appear to be so. You know, They're the good people. You know, we say that. They're good people. Yeah, yeah. maybe uh, develop that a little bit for me. Good people. At least uh, they think they're good. Let's pick it up. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Now, commentators note a stylistic change at this point. It's as though Paul now interjects an imagined objector, who undoubtedly represents a viewpoint that Paul has dealt with in the past. Uh, Clearly, Paul has a moralist in view here, but the debate is over whether he is speaking generally to all moralists, hypocritical moralists in general, or whether he is speaking specifically to Jewish moralists. I take it Paul is addressing all self-righteous moralists, whether they be Jew or Gentile. You see, Paul does not specifically address the Jews until he gets to verse 17, where he addresses uh, the religious person. Uh, In the meantime, Paul repeatedly addresses both Jews and Gentiles as seen in verse 9, 10, 12, 14, and 15. In addition, note that as Paul begins addressing the moralist in chapter 2, verse 1, he addresses him generally as O-man, not specifically naming him as either Jew or Gentile. So in my view, and there are differences here, you will find godly men that uh, say, well, the Jews are in view all the way through here. And okay, we we can, you know, it may be. Uh, But in my view, the best view is that Paul has both uh, the Gentile stoic, if you will, as well as the Jewish moralist in mind. The principle in view applies to both. The word therefore, in chapter 2, verse 1, connects with the idea of God's judgment dealt with at length in chapter 1. A judgment that ultimately encompasses the whole of mankind. Well, the moralist is shown to be just as inexcusable as the pagan who is without excuse. As seen in chapter 1, verse 20. You see, all have no excuse, which is to say no defense. And then Paul specifically addresses the man who judges another while at the very same time practicing the same things. And in this condemns himself. This is pure hypocrisy. And the guilt is inexcusable. The person in view here knows right from wrong, as seen in the fact that they clearly judge accordingly. The issue is not that they're saying, well, what you're saying about these people is wrong. That's not the issue. They're they're right in their analysis. The problem is their hypocrisy. The issue is not just merely judging. It is that. Verse 1 mentions judge three times. But the problem is not merely judging. It's in how they are judging. The problem is not that they are judging. The problem is that they are judging hypocritically. Alva McLean makes a good theological statement here. The faculty of moral judgment is right. God approves it. Every man ought to have it. Everyone ought to be able to look at another man and say, That is wrong. Or, that is right. This man was not condemned because he condemned others. He was not condemned because while he was condemning others he was do- he was condemned because while he was condemning others he was doing the same thing there's the issue and therefore condemned himself for his own sins you know Jesus never said we could not judge what he condemned was judging hypocritically Jesus said to take the plank out of your own eye first and then help your brother with the speck in his eye He didn't say, never address the speck. No, just don't do so hypocritically. The issue is hypocrisy. Now, the world loves to say, and, and, you know, almost all the world has memorized some scripture. Uh, They they almost all know, thou shalt not judge. You know, they have no idea where it's found, but they do know that verse. It's like their their life verse. Thou shalt not judge. But... uh, You know, if you understand properly what the Bible says, there is a place for judgment. Notice what Jesus said, to quote Jesus, in John 7, 24, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And then in 1 Corinthians 2, 15, Paul says, But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. You see, proper judgment is called discernment. You know, the world kind of thinks, thou shalt not discern. Check your brains. We're not making any call here. No moral call here whatsoever. Just don't judge. I mean, that's the... Gr- no. Yes, judge. In the sense of discern. First Thessalonians 5.21 says, test all things. Hold fast what is good. First John 4.1 says, test the spirits, whether they are of God. We are constantly to be evaluating everything, including everything I say. Now, proper godly discernment and evaluation is one thing. But a critical spirit that operates according to the flesh is quite another. In view throughout this whole context in our study today is the issue of hypocrisy. Hypocritical judgment is what is being condemned. This person is being called out as a hypocrite. The problem is not that they make a wrong judgment call. The problem is that in judging others, they're at the same time practicing the same things that they're calling out on others. That's the problem. It's in their practice. Now it's easy to play the hypocrite. You know? I, I wonder in my own soul, even without realizing, I, I think I'm a little better than, you know, that person over there in, in their, what they're doing. You know, it's very easy to start kind of thinking that way, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I, I think it is. I think you probably agree there. Uh, one of the great weaknesses in humanity is that we tend to see the sins of others in a, in a kind of a larger light than our own sin. Uh, we tend to go hard on others, easy on ourselves. I've often seen this, where people get very hard on other people's kids. But my kids, oh, that's a little different. You know, there are good kids. (laughs) You know, someone as well said this. I I wish we hated our own sin as much as we hate everyone else's. Yeah, 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 that's a a good, that's good. And even the godly can fall prey to this. You know, David, a man after God's own heart, certainly a, a godly man. After his great sin of adultery and murder, you know, all of a sudden the prophet Nathan showed up and told him a little story about a a rich man who stole the poor man's lamb. And David, just great, seeing the sin of this individual. So as the Lord lives, a man who has done this shall surely die. And Nathan said, "Uh, sir, you are the man. You are the man. David, you see it up to this point, had overlooked the flagrancy of his own sin. Although he could see it in terms of what the story was about this terrible rich man. He was enraged that someone else would do such a thing. Very human and very wrong. Stephen Cole says, A man complained about the amount of time his family spent in front of the TV. His girls watched cartoons, neglected schoolwork. His wife preferred soap operas to housework. His solution, quote, as soon as baseball season's over, I'm going to pull the plug. <laughs> How easy it is to fall into this deadly sin of self-righteousness. I think we all still wrestle with it. We still have the flesh. We have the Holy Spirit, but we still have the flesh we can kind of be a double standard and and not even realize it. The reason moralists feel so righteous, self-righteous, is because outwardly, you see, they do not, outwardly, they do not play the part of the sinner overtly, as does the raw pagan. You know, he sees himself as much more civilized, much more refined. You know, I think there was a, a time in, in our culture where th- there was a, a tremendous influence uh, uh, as far as Christianity. But then we kind of went into moralism. You know, you know there's just, we're kind of more civilized. We're a little more refined than, than those raw pagans. For the moralist, his sin is more hidden, which is why he feels comfortable in judging the raw pagan. The raw pagan is an easy target. As his sin is all out there and unfiltered and he doesn't care. The moralist would be openly involved would not be openly involved with the sexual deviations of the pagan. The moralist would not be openly involved that way. He would not be caught at the strip club But he might well secretly be involved in porn. And yet he would be very quick to outwardly condemn what is going on at the club. Might even march on that place and close it down. He would not be guilty of physical adultery, but in his heart he lusts after other women. And Jesus addressed this, right? Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Don't do it. But I say to you, there's a little higher standard that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is what the moralist misses. He does not understand that God not only considers what is happening overtly, but also what is happening covertly in the hidden place of the heart. The moralist may not physically steal... But he covets what others have. He may not physically murder someone, but he hates others and through whispers goes about to destroy them. 1 John 3.15 equates hatred to the spirit of murder. This is the way of the moralist. Outwardly, they look pretty good. But on closer inspection, they are hypocrites practicing the same types of things they condemn in others. Sadly, the moralist is blind to his own sinfulness, thinking that since he outwardly isn't doing the things that the raw pagans do, he's okay. The moralist essentially makes two great mistakes. Number one, he thinks himself to be more righteous than he is. And number two, he fails to realize the high standard of God's holiness. Therefore, in his own eyes, he's pretty good. And pretty good is good enough. You see, at worst, he's a respectable sinner. You know, respectable. So much better than those pagans described in chapter 1. And people like to compare. Yes, they will admit, I'm not perfect. After all, nobody is. But they're they're, they're good. They're good people. Not, Not as bad as the scum of society, measured up against the druggie and the harlot, look pretty good. But that's not the standard. You see, God himself, in his perfect holiness, is the standard. Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, He said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. God not only knows the outward, he also knows the inward. God's standard involves the whole of life, the whole person, involving thought, word, and deed. Note uh, what we have uh, Jesus saying, Mark chapter 4, There is nothing hidden which will not be revealed. Wow! Nothing hidden will not be revealed? nor is anything become secret, but that it should come to light. Hebrews 4.13, There is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are naked, open, in in plain view. Naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Verse 2, But we know, we know, that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. The truth is going to come out on judgment day. You see, a hypocrite is a pretender, but God judges according to truth. There's no fooling God. A person for a season might fool everyone else, but God is never fooled. And judgment day is coming, and truth will come out. Those who hypocritically judge others while practicing the same thing are going to be judged by God according to his truth standard, which sees them for what they truly are. You see, God is a God of truth. There's no spin before him. Truly, the no spin zone is found in God's judgment. God's judgment is all about truth. The whole truth, nothing but the truth. Let this statement burn in our ears. The judgment of God is according to truth. Judgment before God is based on reality. People play all kinds of hypocritical games in life, but before God, the truth will come out. I'll never forget a situation I was dealing with uh, involving sin and uh, involving pastoral leadership. And I talked to one of the people that were involved, and in, happened to be another church, and, and uh, this other leader said to me, I don't think we're ever going to know the truth about this situation. Very well covered. But We will. God will. God knows, and His judgment is according to truth. Uh, God's judgment is all about truth. The actual facts of a person's life will one day be laid bare before the bar of God's all-holy judgment. The unvarnished truth will then be brought forth. You know, it's interesting how God uses little things in in our lives. I've mentioned this a lot of times through the years in my ministry. But as a, a little sinner, and I'm talking stature here, as a little sinner, I was watching, you know, that old, uh, that old TV show called Gunsmoke. And Festus was bringing this criminal. And that criminal kept saying, what you going to do? What you going to say? What you going to do come Judgment Day? And they said we didn't have special music this morning. Anyway. <laughs> but I want you to know, I never got that out of my head. It's like, wow, God can use Gunsmoke? Well, I think so. He, you know, I, I never got that out of my head. What are you going to do? What are you going to say? What are you going to do come judgment day, Dwight? Well, I never got that out of my mind until I truly got right with God through faith in my Savior, my Lord Jesus Christ. This is the ultimate issue. On judgment day, when only truth will matter, what are we going to do? As already stated in verse 1, the hypocritical moralist is inexcusable. Meaning he has absolutely no defense. What are you going to say? No defense. I have no defense. Have nothing to say in his defense. The good news is we can settle out of court by putting our faith in Jesus. And when we do, all the charges against us are dropped. Because Jesus, as our representative, took our place in paying for all of our sins on the cross. This is good news beyond comprehension. And to really appreciate the good news, you have to, first of all, appreciate the bad news. And that's where Paul is. Paul continues, speaking to the self-righteous moralist, verse 3. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? You you think you're going to get away with this? Note the consistent issue throughout is this hypocritical judge is actually practicing the very same sin he judges in others. On some level. Verse 1, you who judge practice the same things. Verse 2, who practice such things. Verse 3, judge those practicing such things and doing the same. This person definitely should have known what he was doing was wrong because he judges it wrong in others. And yet he's blind to the fact that he's doing the same things himself, just more covertly. This is inexcusable, verse 1. And apart from repentance, is inescapable from judgment, verse 3. Moody Bible commentary. Moral people are presumptuous in their thinking. They strive to live a principled life, do not usually act as those in Romans 1, and assume that God will overlook their occasional moral lapse, because they really do strive to be good, outwardly. You see, the moralist believes trying counts for something. Nice try. Come on in. It doesn't work that way. You're not saved by trying. You're saved by trusting. Trying will get you to hell. You see, the moralist thinks that God grades on a curve. And that he will give them a passing grade for outwardly doing better than the overt pagan of Romans 1. Again, they completely misjudge the perfect standard of God. God doesn't grade On a curve. He demands absolute perfection. I mean, it was just one sin, just just one sin that got Adam and Eve kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Isn't that a little harsh? A little harsh. One sin? One sin brought death on the whole human race? Just a little apple? I mean, just a little momentary lapse? What? One sin? One sin will keep a person out of heaven for all eternity. God is perfectly holy. He cannot allow us into his all holy heaven with even one sin on our record. You say, I'm pretty good. Yeah, you're wrong. Isaiah 64, 6. We are all like an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses. This is all the right things about us. All our righteousness. We can say all of our sins are as filthy rags. No, 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 no. All the right things. All our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities, like the wind have taken us away. All the right things we do are still tainted by sinfulness. It's like me inviting you over for scrambled eggs, right? say, Dwight, I didn't know you were a chef. Well, I am. I make scrambled eggs. I'm really good at it. And, uh, but, you know, it's been, uh, things are kind of hard here. So I've got, uh, you know, six good eggs and I've got one rotten egg. We need seven, so we're just going to throw the rotten egg in with the other ones. We'll mix it all up. It'll be presentable to you, right? Thank you, Pastor, for having me over. No, you would never accept that. You see, the one rotten egg defiles the entire batch. And that's the way it is with our lives. You say, oh, I've done this, 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 this. Well, yeah, what about this, 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 this? We're all tainted by our sinfulness. Romans 3 says, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who does good, no, not one. Isaiah 53, 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray, no exception. Jesus said, No one is good but one, and that is God. If you want to get to heaven by being good, then be perfect. That's heaven's standard. Absolute perfection as God is perfect. He cannot have fellowship with any sin. Not even one. Be perfect and you can go to heaven to live with a perfect God in a perfect heaven. So there you go. You want to be good? Be perfect. That's your way in. You just have to be perfect. All the time in thought, word, and deed. Sadly, as Paul says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short, very short of the glory of God. There's a standard. It's God's glory. All all come short of the glory of God. That is why we need a Savior. Pastor Dwight isn't going to heaven because of any of the uh, things I've done. And believe me, I, I, I know I come so short. You say, well, but since you made a commitment, you've been good. No, 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 no. Just yesterday, I'm quite sure I came quite short. We need a Savior. We need Jesus. He alone is the way in. And He's not part of the way. He's the full way. We can't get there. It doesn't matter how moral we might be. In fact, if you think you're getting to heaven by being a a very moral person, you are a very proud person. You don't realize how sinful you are in your morality. Here's what Jeremiah says. You know those prophets. They just were kind of harsh people. Jeremiah 179, the heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You don't know my heart, Jeremiah. You don't know my heart. People say that sometimes. You don't know my heart. Yeah, but God does. The heart's deceitful. Desperately wicked. It's true even of the moralist. The problem is he doesn't realize how totally sinful he really is. He is evaluating himself according to his own standards instead of according to God's holy standard. And consequently, he has a false sense of security, thinking he's okay with God. He wrongly thinks that his moralism will help him escape the judgment of God. Surprise! Judgment day is coming. You will not escape. Verse 4. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, Not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Verse 4 suggests that not only is the moralist a self-righteous hypocrite, but also that he has ignored and thereby despised the forbearing goodness of God, he completely misreads the common grace of God in his life. You see, since the moralist does not have the immediate outward effects of an overtly sinful lifestyle like the pagan, he thinks the favor of God rests upon him. He thinks he's blessed because he's such a good moral person. You see, while the druggie dies a miserable death way too early in life, he doesn't. He's not doing the drugs. While the sexually perverse deal with all manner of diseases, he doesn't. And so he attributes his relative well-being to the fact of his moralism. Not realizing that God in common grace is giving him space to repent. Self-righteous people, as I say, are very proud people. They don't need to repent because they're good people in their own minds. They don't come to repentance because they don't think they need to. They don't see themselves as hypocrites. They don't see themselves as holding to a double standard. Thus, they despise the riches of God's goodness. To despise means to look down on. They don't appreciate it. They don't think it applies to them. Goodness is often translated as kindness. And it's the idea of common grace. God in common grace puts up with a lot. Including the self-righteousness of the hypocritical moralist. But instead of appreciating God giving space to repent... Instead of seeing God being gracious in waiting for them to come to repentance, they don't appreciate it at all. Which is to say, they despise it. They look down on it. Putting yourself up as being okay, when in fact you hypocritically judge others, in reality is to despise God's gracious dealings with you. Instead of realizing, I'm guilty of sin, this person doesn't realize that in their sinfulness, God hasn't yet brought the hammer of judgment down on them because He is graciously waiting for them to come to repentance. Note the language, not knowing, literally being ignorant that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. They fail to realize that God in His goodness is holding back the punishment which they deserve. And God is holding back the punishment because he desires that they would come to repentance. Instead of thinking that things are going well for me because of my moral goodness, they should realize that God is merely being patient in allowing them space to come to repentance. But they don't get it. Forbearance is the idea of tolerance. Of self-restraint. Of holding back. God is a forbearing God. You know, he doesn't just immediately bring the hammer down. No, he gives space. You know, Adam and Eve ate uh, the apple. They didn't drop over dead instantly, right? No, uh, I don't think so. Read it carefully. They didn't drop over dead instantly. God gave, yes, they spiritually, immediately experienced spiritual death, but not physical death. That involved a process. God gave them some space. Long-suffering is the idea of, of patience. Or being long-tempered. Instead of being short-tempered, God is long-tempered. He puts up with a lot. So the idea of tolerance and and patience are closely related and stated in such a way as to make an emphasis. Furthermore, they explain the idea of God's goodness or kindness. Expositor says in this passage, tolerance and patience seem to be explanatory of goodness or, or kindness. Which is repeated as the governing thought. God, in common grace, consistently gives space and opportunity for repentance. This is so good of God, so good. He doesn't immediately bring the hammer of judgment down, He patiently forbears, He withholds pending judgment. Desiring that people would recognize his goodness and, and come to repentance. I mean, what about this verse, 2 Peter 3, 9? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness. Why is God dragging his feet? We know. He's patient toward you. Here's the deal. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's waiting for more people to come to Repentance. I'm glad he didn't cut it off the day before I got saved. How about you? God in his kindness postpones punishment so that people might come to repentance. That's, that's why we're waiting. Hey, by the way, we're to be getting out there beating the bushes and telling them. But the self-righteous moralist is indifferent to God's patient forbearance, not even realizing he needs to repent. R. can't use. he actually thinks the kindness, tolerance, and patience of God in his life is a kind of divine okay on the course he has chosen rather than seeing it as a chance for repentance. Thus, the moralist misreads God's patience in not bringing judgment, thinking it is because he is okay with God. In reality, God in his goodness is just giving space for repentance. Which the moralist presumes on. Leon Morris says, anyone who thinks he will escape judgment despises God's kindness, treats it as of no account. The word repentance uh, literally means to have a change of mind. It's a change of mind about sin and about Jesus. And they go together. Uh, To truly change your mind about sin is to change your mind about Jesus. To truly change your mind about Jesus is to change your mind about sin. The one inherently involves the other. That is why sometimes the Bible emphasizes faith, and sometimes it emphasizes repentance. But the reality is the one intrinsically involves the other. We are saved by faith alone, but it must be the right kind of faith. It must be a change of mind kind of faith. That is to say, saving faith naturally involves the element of repentance. This is the only place in Romans, by the way, that Paul uses the word repentance. Although he makes it clear in other places that this was a mainstay emphasis in his ministry. In summarizing his ministry in Acts chapter 20, verse 21, he says, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, uh, every scope of his ministry, uh, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. A.P. Gibbs gives this definition, and it's a good summary definition. Repentance is a change of mind which produces a change of attitude and results in a change of action. The goodness of God right now in forbearance and long-suffering is holding the door of grace open that whosoever will can come. Last invitation in the Bible, Revelation twenty two seventeen. 17. The Spirit of the Bride say, Come. Let him who hears say, Come. Let him who thirsts, Come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. This is God's pattern. He waited 120 years before he sent the flood, saying in Genesis 6-3, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. He is tolerant and patient, but there are limits. God sent many prophets to Israel to call them to repentance, waiting 800 years before he brought the judgment of captivity down on them. You know, the coming day of the Lord judgment has been hanging over the head of the world for over 2,000 years. And yet God waits. Oh, the extent of his goodness as seen in his tolerance and patience as he waits for more people to come to him in saving faith. It is for this reason, the Bible says, now is the accepted time. Behold, Now is the day of salvation. And again today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse 5. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Here's what happens to self-righteous moralists who will not come to repentance. Their self-righteousness is indicative of a hard heart. Of a heart and impenitent heart. They have a heart problem. Now a hard heart is one that is now unresponsive and insensitive to God. An impenitent heart means one that's unrepentant. It is hard and will not repent. Those who go along with this, with this condition are treasuring up or storing up wrath for themselves in the day of wrath. You know what they're doing in their life? You say, well, they're not doing anything. Yeah, they are. They're collecting wrath. I mean, it's just like they're collecting trash on themselves. Uh, and it's a, it's a collection of wrath that will be poured out on them in the final judgment. Someone as well said, the wealth of grace, when sliding, verse 4, turns into a wealth of wrath, which will fall on them in the day of wrath, verse 5. What the unrepentant are doing is steadily accumulating an ever-increasing amount of wrath against themselves. The more they resist the goodness of God, the more the wrath of God is being stored up against them. A proud, self righteous, unrepentant heart is constantly stockpiling the wrath of God. That's what they're doing. These people will show up at the end of their lives and find a huge pile of wrath that they have collected, which is now to be administered forever in the lake of fire. This, my friends, is horrible beyond comprehension. The wrath here in 2 5 is future, in contrast to the present revealing of the wrath of God as we saw in chapter 1. The explicit statement will render to each one personally in verse 6, in combination to the day of wrath, would indicate this is talking about a future final day of judgment related to each individual person and not to God's general judgment of the entire world. This final judgment will be a day of wrath for the unrepentant. The grace... uh, Door, the, the, the day of grace will then be shut. Now the eternal day of wrath will open. And this wrath will reveal in full the righteous judgment of God. And this corresponds to the judgment of God, which is according to truth, as we saw in verse 2. We have a description of it in Revelation 14. He himself also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. This is the ultimate picture of God's wrath that will be poured out on the unrepentant at the final judgment. Words cannot adequately describe it. It is is horrible beyond what the mind can comprehend. Well, Paul's thought of the unrepentant moralist giving account in the day of wrath continues now into verse 6. Who will render to each one, speaking of God, God will render to each one according to his deeds. I want you to note that word, deeds. This judgment is personal. It is personal with God and directed personally to all those with a hard and impenitent heart. To render is the idea of to pay back. Payday someday. This is payday. It will be according to truth, verse 3. According to the righteous judgment of God, verse 5. Fueled by the wrath of God, verse 5. And no one guilty on that day will escape. There's no escape. In Deuteronomy 7, it says this about these God-haters. He repays those who hate him to their face. You want to meet God and make your case? You'll have your opportunity, unbelievers. He repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. These moralists who were so sure of their self-righteous standing Will get their day in God's court, and God will render to each one according to his deeds. This ultimately has the great white throne judgment in view, spoken of in Revelation chapter 20. Note uh, what we find there. I want to point out something here. Uh, Revelation 20 I saw a great white throne, him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. There was found no place for them, there's no place to hide. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. The books were opened. This is the judgment of unbelievers. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books. And then verse 13. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. Note that judgment is individual and personal, and each one is judged according to his own works. This emphasis is found twice here in Revelation 20. The principle stated here in Romans 2.6 drives the text through the rest of this whole section. The principle is that God's judgment is according to, to deeds. You see, all of God's end time judgments are on the basis of works. There is no exception. This is the consistent flow of thought that began in Romans 1 17 and 18. We're known by our lives. That's true for the godly and the ungodly. This flow of thought began in Romans 1, 17 and 18, where the righteousness of God is revealed. In the lives of people of faith. And the wrath of God is revealed in relation to those who live ungodly. The idea is that where one stands with God is then revealed in their practice, in their deeds. For the believer, our sin was forever judged at the cross of Christ. We will not be judged for the penalty of sin. The issue of the believer's judgment is not salvation. Because that's already been decided the moment we put our faith in Christ. In John 5, 24, Jesus said he who believes at that moment is passed from death to life. And Romans 8, 1 is very clear that there is no condemnation for all that are in Christ Jesus. However, the believer's judgment is also about works. But the issue is Rewards. The degree of reward that we will receive is based on the quality of our service, our works. But in contrast, the unrepentant will be judged according to their works and receive a corresponding degree of eternal wrath. All the lost will go to the lake of fire, but there are differing degrees of eternal punishment. That is reflected here in verse 6, where it says, God will render to each one according to his deeds. It matters how, what you're doing, whether as a believer in relationship to rewards or whether as an unbeliever in relationship to wrath. We know that the ultimate issue is belief versus unbelief. But the Bible emphasizes that both belief and unbelief are then demonstrated in how one lives which is what Paul will go on to illustrate at great length if we get to next week and the rapture hasn't happened and I don't die and those kind of things. But note this principle throughout the scriptures. Jeremiah 17, 10. I, the Lord, search the heart. I search the heart. I test the mind. Even to give every man according to his ways. There's a connection between the heart and the ways. According to the fruit of his doing. Proverbs 24, 12, if you say, surely we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each one according to his deeds? Again, the connection between the heart and the deeds. Jesus said this, Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. John 5, 28, 29. Do not marvel at this. The hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. And come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now we might expect that in the judgment, the issue would merely be that of belief. I mean, that's the issue we constantly make and it is the ultimate issue. But we find that the issue at judgment is always that of works. By the way, this totally obliterates easy believism, which is it doesn't matter how you live. Yeah, the issue is it matters how you believe, and if you really believe in a saving way, it will affect how you live. <laughs> that's a consistent, that's sound doctrine. We must die there on that mountain. The sense is that this is the court of the universe. Before God Almighty. And in a court of law, the issue is evidence. The evidence for rebel unbelief is seen in a person's practice. What they did. It's true for believers as well. There's evidence. The evidence of their deeds will all be brought forth. And it will condemn all unbelievers. John Stott says, Such a public occasion on which a public verdict will be given and a public sentence passed will require public and verifiable evidence to support them. And the only public evidence available will be our works. What we have done and been seen to do. The presence or absence of saving faith in our hearts will be disclosed by the presence or absence of good works of love in our lives. The point is this. How a person lives tells on their heart. Practice tells on whether a person has true faith or rebel unbelief. Every person will have their day in God's court before the judgment bar of God, and their deeds will tell the verdict. Wycliffe Bible Commentary Works are always central in the New Testament picture of judgment, and they are. They are an outward indication of an individual's inward trust or commitment. The Lord, of course, looks at both the inward and the outward, but the outward activity reveals the inward conviction. John MacArthur, a person's actions form an infallible index to his character. You know them by their fruits, Jesus said twice in the Sermon on the Mount. Leon Morris, judgment will be on the basis of works, though salvation is all of grace. Works are important. They are the outward expression of what the person is down deep. In the believer, they are the expression of faith. In the unbeliever, the expression of unbelief, and whether by way of legalism or antinomianism. We want to be crystal clear. That while the Bible teaches that judgment is by works, it nowhere teaches that salvation is by works. Rather, it teaches that we are saved by faith alone. But then saving faith works its way out into life, or as Paul said, from faith to faith. Salvation is not by works, but if we have the right kind of faith, it will produce works. A true saving faith works. We're not saved by works, but we're saved by a faith that works. We're not saved by the fruit, we're saved by the faith. But if the faith is real, there will be fruit. To some degree, on some level. You say, what about the thief on the cross? He's still bearing fruit. What are you talking about? I mean, he's rebuking the other thief that wouldn't repent. (laughs) Yeah. Well, let's wrap this up, shall we? You don't have to all say amen at the same time. (laughs) Uh, The morals is all about judging because he thinks within himself he's better than others. (laughs) I'm a pretty good person, you know. Uh, Sing my praises for a while, shall we? Let's turn to that hymn that sings my praise. In truth, he's not honest. He's not, not honest with God, others, or himself. He's a hypocritical liar. And you know what John says about liars. All liars will have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is a second death. Liars, according to John, are religious liars. I'm okay with God. I'm okay. I'm okay. I know him. I know him. Liar? You're living a total double life. I remember as a young man, I was working in the body shop. This guy, he was, a, he was an atheist. He got saved and he came to work. He knew how I'd been living. I lived in a party house with four other guys. Yes, we did. We lived a party. And uh, I was raised in a Christian home. My mother was a very godly woman. And uh, uh, so I knew, I knew more than he knew. But he was a true Christian now. And he said to me, you claim to be a Christian. How come you're living the way you're living? No defense. Nothing to say. End up getting saved through that. This section starts out with the moralist, in effect, playing God. Putting himself in the place of the judge. You know, God, we we are fruit inspectors, but, but God alone is the ultimate judge. He had pointed us to that. The text ends up by emphasizing that God is the judge of all. And in the end, he will judge in truth in accordance with perfect righteousness. But until then, the goodness of God, the common grace of God leads to repentance. All those who will respond to the gospel in the obedience of faith. You see, there are no holier-than-thou people in heaven. We're all sinners saved by grace. In truth, there are no good people. None of us in and of ourselves are good. You say, well, I think I am. Well, I'm trying to change your thinking. God wants you to change your thinking. You see, we all equally need a Savior. Forever and ever, we will be singing the praises of our God and His amazing grace. John Newton, who wrote the song Amazing Grace, spoke of what he called the three wonders of heaven. He said the three wonders of heaven will be this. The the first wonder will be that some people won't be there that I thought would be. The second wonder is that some people will be there that I didn't think would be there. And then he said, but the third and most amazing wonder is that I myself will be there. You see, the only difference between the best, quote-unquote, best person in heaven and the worst, quote-unquote, person in hell is that those in heaven have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior in a life-changing way. There is no holier than thou. We as believers are simply trophies of grace. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And for us, the truly great wonder of heaven will be that we ourselves are even there. Well, where will you be? Even today, repent of your sin. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ from your heart. And you too will be saved and become a trophy of grace. Let's stand and have our closing song.